Well, this morning we are beginning our look at the Gospel of John, and I want to ask you to uh, pray with me as we ask for the Lord's blessing on what is really amounts to an introduction uh, to the Gospel of John this morning. Uh, Let's pray. Father, may you bless your word now as we prepare for uh, what probably amounts to a a few months, Father, of being in the Gospel of John as a church and as your children. Uh, may you prepare our hearts and may we just get a good grasp of the book this morning and may we be blessed by your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I actually really like int- introductions uh, to books and one of the reasons I, I like going through an introduction is because An introduction provides us uh, the opportunity to look at the book that we're going to be studying uh, from what you might call the bird's bird's eye view, the the big picture of the book. And in looking at the big picture, that helps us to, as we're going through, like uh, Chris mentioned earlier when he was reading from the scriptures, he talked about the context of of that chapter that he was reading. Um, A bird's eye view of a book helps us when we're looking to understand any given passage. And so whenever you read the scriptures, even if you're at, at home and you're doing scripture reading on your, you know, on your own, uh, do you remember those little daily bread? Do you ever get those, those little daily bread things and you take out your daily bread and you read the one verse? And, and it's good. You, you want to hide God's word in your heart. But uh, one of the the challenges of doing that, though, and, and a danger, you might say, is that every verse from the daily bread thing you take out is, is just basically interpreted by you and, and likely applied totally out of context. That can happen very easily. And so you always want to make sure you're keeping the context in mind of what we're reading and we're working from that um, bigger context down into the more specific passage and so I just want to encourage you to do that as in your own daily reading of the scriptures. So you always want to understand what came before the verse you're reading. Uh, what did the prior verses say? What did the prior paragraph say? What, did the, what is the point of the section you're reading? Uh, how does that fit into the purpose of the book? And how does this book fit into the overall story of God's redemptive history? Now... I know that you're not going to be able to read the entire book every time you pick up your Bible uh, and read from a specific passage, but I thought of it like this about an introduction is that if you take the time at the beginning to get familiar with the big picture and the main purpose, then you're going to get off on the right foot at least for the, the passages that are to come, and it'll help us keep our bearings uh, straight as we go through this book. And that's especially important with the Gospel of John because the Gospel of John, there's a lot in there that it, you're probably very familiar with and you've probably heard over and over like, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So there are some things that you're going to be familiar with as we go through this. And that makes it all the more important to keep the context in mind because we tend to think as we read something over and over again, we, we tend to think that we just understand it, uh, but it's, we may not truly understand the context. And so 
Uh, so anyway, that's why I like going through introductions. Um, it's kind of like a plumb line, a plumb line that you lay, that you build a building from, and the introduction kind of serves that purpose. So to help us then set down uh, this plumb line, uh, here's what we're going to do for our introduction. Uh, we're going to consider really five points. And I don't know if you got a handout, but I, I did provide a handout this week in the back, um, in the back. But five, five points. Uh, we're we're going to look at the author of the Gospel of John. And there are some reasons we're going to go th through the author um, that I think are important. And, and so the author... And then we're going to look at what I would call unique, the uniqueness of this gospel and the themes, kind of together, the uniqueness and the themes of the gospel of John. And then we're going to look at the, the purpose and goal. Okay, so, so what is the purpose and the goal of the gospel of John? Okay, so I, I'm excited to go through this gospel. Um, and one of the reasons I'm excited is because I know that John, I, get, I mean, that's who the author is, we'll talk about that, but I know that John, his aim is to help us set our eyes, the eyes of our hearts on Christ, and, and that's what we want to be doing um, always, and so we'll talk about that as we get to the purpose, but all that to say is the author, uniqueness and themes, purpose, and goal. So let me at least read from the first 18 verses, um, just so that we would hear the beginning. And we'll look at these 18 verses next week in, in more detail. But I just want us to hear how John introduces what, what is really a prologue. So what we're reading here in verses 1 to 18 is really kind of a, a prologue and an outline of many of the things that John's going to unpack later in the gospel. So he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. 
grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. What a beautiful prologue. What a beautiful introduction to this gospel that we believe was written uh, by the Apostle John, John the son of Zebedee. And the thing that's interesting is we, we call it the gospel according to John, just like the other three what you would call synoptic gospels, meaning those synoptic gospels are looking at the, the life of Jesus from this same perspective, and uh, gospel according to Matthew, gospel according to Mark, and gospel according to Luke. And they're giving us this account of the life of Jesus. And here John is a, it's a little bit different. It's not one of those synoptic gospels. It's giving us a different perspective on the, the life of Jesus um, and covering some of the same things, but, but many unique things that it's covering. And the author of this book is John, the son of Zebedee. And what is interesting, though, is that uh, the book never mentions him by name, and it never actually identifies him as the author directly. And so why do we think it's John, the son of Zebedee, and why does it matter? Those are the things we're going to cover here. Um, so there's really two lines of evidence that point us to John, the son of Zebedee, as the author of the gospel. And so this conclusion is drawn from what you might call the internal testimony of the book, as well as the external testimony of the early church. So when it comes to the internal testimony, you can look there what we read in the very beginning in John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, so right there at the very beginning, this is significant because this verse suggests that the author was an eyewitness, okay? The author was an eyewitness to what he is recording. So some will say, oh, well, this verse is simply making appeal to all humanity, or to the Christian church at large. That, that's to say that what the author is saying is he dwelt among us like the human race or Christian community, and we, the human race or Christian community, have seen him. So some say it's a more general uh, approach to that verse. And I just, to me, it seems way more natural in, in the Greek and in the context uh, to realize that the author is not making a general reference here. He's making a very specific and personal reference um, to what they witnessed about the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he's making a reference to those who physically saw him, uh, which is in line with how that verb seeing is used in the New Testament. It's always used to refer to physical, not spiritual sight. And you can also see that he has a specific group in mind um, by his reference to the witness of John the Baptist, 
the witness and rejection of Christ by Israel, and the reference to all who did receive him and believed in him. So in other words, they are all among those who Jesus dwelt among and who saw his glory. He's talking about a very specific witness. And you see John in 1 John 1, 1 to 4 kind of say the same thing. It's kind of a parallel here. He says, distinguishing between the we and the you in this chapter, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and then notice and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. In other words, there's this distinction between we and you. So that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so the gospel is not, as we're reading it, is not from some distant author that's writing from secondhand experience. This is important. This is a first-hand account of someone who actually walked and talked and physically saw the Lord Jesus. And this adds an element, really, of authority to what is being record, recorded. A second passage to consider, as we're going to build this case for John here, is from John 19, verse 35. So here as the writer of this gospel is moving along, he, he writes this. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. And so the context of John 19 is, of course, in reference to all that took place at the crucifixion. And notably, you'll note in this section that Jesus says to the disciple whom he loved to care for his mother. Okay? So you'll see at the end of chapter 19... Uh, the person who saw this crucifixion is bearing witness, and part of what he is bearing witness to is in verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And so this one who bore witness to the crucifixion and this is saying he knows he is telling the truth and he's bearing witness that you might believe. 
So the point is that if the author intended really to bolster the weight of that testimony about the crucifixion, he would have given the name of the one he is referring to rather than referring to this person as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so it makes more sense that if the author is the witness rather than someone else, that he would only make reference not to a specific person by name, but to himself in this manner. Okay, so, so far we've seen the internal testimony that the author is an eyewitness to all that transpired in the life and death of Jesus. He was even there at the crucifixion itself, and he is identifying himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And finally, after his resurrection, one more passage, there is John 21, 24 to 25, which, which says pretty clearly, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So here he's saying in 21, 24 to 25 that this is the disciple. So then the question is, what does he mean by this is the disciple? What, what disciple is he talking about? And verse 20 identifies this disciple the one bearing witness, who has written these things, whose testimony is true, as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and asked the Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And the immediate context tells us that among the group of disciples in this passage who were with Jesus at this time, is Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two others in chapter 21, verse 22. In chapter 21, verse 22 of, God, of the Gospel of John, we notice that this disciple and this group of people are with Jesus in John 21. Does that make sense? So, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. And verse 2 says, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Okay, So this is the group that is together, and this is... So therefore, this disciple who is writing these things, must be among that group, okay? All right. Now, when you look at the Gospels, you'll see that there's a close connection between Peter and this disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, they're often seen together, Peter and John, the son of Zebedee. John 13, 23 to 24, they're the two that were sent to prepare the Last Supper, He's with Peter when Mary Magdalene comes to tell him the tomb is empty. Um, you'll also notice in chapter 20, verse 28, 
that he remembers that he came to, that he believed while Peter didn't. Um, Luke 22, verse 8, um, Mark 5, 37, Mark 9, 2, Mark 14, 33. You always see Peter and John and James together in close connection. And so this suggests that the author who is writing, this disciple whom Jesus loved, is close with Peter and he's part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. So it wouldn't be Thomas and Nathaniel, because they weren't that close to Peter, and it's not the other two disciples who are basically not even referred to, and it wouldn't be James, because James, the brother of John, the other son of Zebedee, he was martyred in Acts 12, right? So all of the evidence points to John, the son of Zebedee, as the author of this gospel, um, he is mentioned in the other Gospels 20 times, but in this Gospel, he's never mentioned even once. So, finally, there's external evidence from the early church fathers um, that testify to John as the author. And going back to the early 2nd century with Irenaeus, who lived from 130 to 200, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. And Irenaeus tells us on Polycarp's testimony and authority that John wrote the gospel. And so I don't want to go through all of that history. I think I put some of it in your notes. But Irenaeus was very close to Polycarp. And Irenaeus says, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. So the testimony of the early church is that John wrote it in his old age while in Ephesus, probably somewhere between the date of 80 and 90 when John was older. Maybe he's taking notes along the way and then he puts them together in a book. Now, the reason that is important, again, is because I'm going to remind us again that it tells us that what we are going to study about our Lord Jesus Christ comes from an older, seasoned, godly Christian man. One who walked again with Jesus, talked with him, laid on his breast, took care of his mother after he died, one who was within the inner circle of the closest disciples among Jesus. This is why there is such a tenderness to this gospel. Even in the way John opens it, John, unlike any other gospel, gives us a look at really the inner consciousness even of Jesus. When we read this gospel, you're going to see, while the other gospels talk about this, you're going to see the, really what is a special communication of Jesus' love. You're going to see Jesus' love for his disciples. We've already said how Jesus loved his mother. John's going to tell us how Jesus loved his friend Lazarus who died so much so that when he went to the funeral of Lazarus 
the scripture says Jesus wept. John's going to show us the, the heart of Jesus even when it comes to his prayer before the Father in John chapter 17. You, John shows us how Jesus in that priestly prayer, he reveals something about the nature of Jesus and his love and his, his, the inner workings of his soul more than the other gospels do. And he talks about several details and accounts about the ministry of Jesus that no other gospel mentions. And so it's very unique in a lot of ways. A seasoned disciple in his old age that bore witness to the Savior that he loved and that he knew loved him. And that may be why he avoids to even give his name to begin with. He is so humbled to know that he is loved by Christ after all he is borne witness to, that Jesus would choose him and love him and care for him. And I think as John is writing this gospel, I think there's part of him that he just can't help but just be overwhelmed by Christ's love for him. And so he just refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he doesn't even want to put his name down in the gospel. And so, so he's the author. And then you're going to see these unique themes throughout the Gospel of John. And really one of the most important ways in which this Gospel is unique, com unique compared to the other Gospels is the way that Jesus is explicitly identified with God in this Gospel. So if you look back at John chapter 1, verse 1, we'll go through some verses here. But John 1, 1, the other Gospels present Jesus as God as well, but not so explicitly as John. So John, from the very opening verse in chapter 1, verse 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Even all the way to the end of the book in chapter 20, verse 28, we read, John writes that Thomas answered Jesus after his resurrection and says, my Lord and my God. And all throughout the book, this theme of the deity of Jesus throughout the whole gospel is, is put before us. You have all of these great I am statements of the Lord in the gospel of John. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine, all of these being pulled from the Old Testament references to God in the Old Testament. Jesus is pulling these in, and John is showing us how Jesus is saying he is all of these things. But even more than that, John will say in John chapter 8, verse 58, he will record for us where Jesus says to the Pharisees when they were mad at him, um, and saying, who do you think you are? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, 
I am. Period. Jesus is saying he is the eternally existent one. And so John makes no qualms about this in his gospel. It is all over the pages of scripture that Jesus is identified with God. And this is a little different than the synoptic gospels in that in the synoptic gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we have been through Luke as a church, you'll see that it takes them time to get this. So as those gospels go on, they get it over time in their gospels. But like I said, here in John, at the very opening verse and the very opening chapter, Jesus is not only a rabbi, he is identified as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, the King of Israel. And this is carried out through the entire book. All of this identifies Jesus with God. And so it, John highlights that. So it's a very theological gospel. And this is also why, um, in terms of the uniqueness, um, you'll see a lot of dualism in this book opposites. So you'll see this distinction, life and death, from above, from below, light and dark, truth and lie, sight and blindness. These massive contrasts, they're all meant to convey something about Jesus that is different than the ordinary, so different from, from typical man. And then you'll see a lot of signs and proofs throughout the gospel. Here's what MacArthur says, about the signs and the proofs in the gospel. John MacArthur, he writes, the first half of the gospel centers around seven miraculous signs selected to reveal Christ's person and to engender belief. Water is made into wine, the healing of the official son, the healing of the lame man, the feeding of a multitude, walking on water, healing of a blind man, the raising of Lazarus, and the eighth sign being the catching of fish after his resurrection. All of these signs John gives us are meant to point us to the true identity of Jesus as the incarnate Son of God, whose divine and human natures were perfectly united in one person who is Christ the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And that's why, along with all of these this uniqueness of Jesus, this emphasis on Jesus as God, and this theme of dualism and the signs which point to his identity, one of the themes most emphasized in this gospel is also the theme of belief or faith in him. Belief occurs 100 times in this gospel when the other synoptic gospels use the term half as much. And that leads us really into the main purpose and goal of the book. So turn to John 20, 31. So we covered quickly the author and the, the date from 80 to 90. And we looked at the uniqueness and the themes, the deity of Christ and the signs and so on, and the theme of belief through the scriptures. And 
we get to the purpose and goal here, and, and we'll conclude with this. Because really, this is what any other introduction and background, John tells us here why he wrote it. And this is why I'm excited. John says in John 20, verse 31, verse 30, he says, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples. God, John, this old seasoned Christian, he's seen so much. He's seen Jesus do so many things. And he says he's done a lot of things in, in the presence of us, and I couldn't write everything down in this book. But he gave us very specific things for a reason. And he says, these are written, all of this gospel, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In writing his gospel, it's not that his writers might believe in general. You understand that? He is not writing so that you might just believe. People will say that they're saved. And I've asked people, why are you saved? How do you know you're a Christian? And they say, because I have faith. Faith. Do you mean that you're just spiritual? You think you're saved because you're a spiritual person who has faith? John never says in his gospel that he is writing this so that you believe, period, does he? He is writing this so that you might believe and have faith in something very specific about Jesus. I write these things that you may believe and have faith that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is what you must believe. And John knows that you must believe these things. And so all that John writes and the whole purpose of him writing and unpacking all of these glorious truths about our Savior is so that you might be saved and you might believe on him and come to know him. And so to believe has somewhat of an evangelistic component to it. So John is writing this for an evangelistic reason. And he's writing this to people, maybe even Jewish people who he knew, and even Gentiles, that they might read this 
and that they might come to faith in Christ. But I also think believe here can also be used in the sense of edification. And so that is that you might continue in, in the faith, that you might know that you have eternal life. So John is saying both. I am writing this so that you may believe, that is, come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm writing this so that you who have believed may continue believing in Jesus Christ, that you may be edified and strengthened by what you're reading in the gospel. And I think John has both purposes in mind. And so if you're here this morning and you have not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ, John wants you to hear about Jesus and what he has done. John wants you to see Jesus for who he is and to be saved and to have faith in him. And that's why I love this gospel. This is why I'm excited to go through it with you over the next several months because if you remain with us throughout this study, you are going to leave knowing who Jesus is and what he has done to save sinners. And you will know how you can be made right with God. And I hope that's your desire to be made right with God this morning. The Gospel of John will tell you all about that. And if you're here this morning and you have already come to faith in Christ, which most of us here have, John wants us to be strengthened in our faith by what we read and learn about Jesus from his gospel. Our faith will be reinforced and the gift of eternal life that is promised to us through faith in Christ will be confirmed over and over and over again through this book as, G as John reminds us that Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Son of God, who came to save sinners. That's why he opens it up in John 1, 1 to 18, the way that he does. He starts it out from the very beginning of his gospel by saying, I won't read the whole prologue again, but in verse 12, he says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Close with these words of Charles Spurgeon about this gospel and specifically about verse 14. I just was so encouraged by this. He says, Believer, you can bear your testimony that Christ is the only Son from the Father as well as the firstborn from the dead. 
you can say he is divine to me even if he is regarded as simply human by the world. He has done for me what only God could do. He subdued my stubborn will, melted a rebellious heart, opened gates of brass, and snapped bars of iron. He has turned my mourning into laughter and my desolation into joy. He has led my captivity captive and made my heart rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let others think of him as they will. To me, he must be the only son from the Father. Blessed be his name. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to briefly introduce this gospel. We look forward to the coming weeks where we can actually exposit your scriptures and open them up and and hear from our, our Lord and reflect on his person and what he came to do for us. We love your word, O oh God, and we love that John, the son of Zebedee, was used by you to give us these truths about Christ, that we might believe upon him for salvation and have eternal life. We know, O oh God, that the world is so confused about who Jesus is that they don't even know that he is God of gods. He is God Almighty, divine. They don't know that he is fully man, and they don't even know or believe that God could take on flesh and redeem a humanity. They don't know about the atonement that he made for sinners. They don't know about your love, O oh God, for sinners. There's so much in here that the world needs to know about Jesus, and there is so much that we as your children need to know as we go through this gospel. And so I pray that we would be richly blessed by this study, O oh God, that our eyes would be open to the glories of Christ and who he is, that we would learn things as we go through this gospel that maybe we haven't seen before about Jesus, that we would be reminded of our salvation, that we would be reminded of the need of salvation of sinners who are still lost, that we would be reminded of the Savior who offers himself to redeem. Help us, O oh God, to see Jesus clearly and bless us as a church as we set our hearts and our minds on Christ. We ask for your blessing on us in Christ's name. Amen.